The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Today's scripture describes the life and ministry and death of a man named Stephen. And his story covers a couple chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7. And we're just going to read the beginning and end of his story. And, but we're going to refer to the whole of it this morning. And so go in your Bibles to chapter 6 in Acts, chapter 6. We're going to read uh, verse 1 to 15, and then we're going to skip to the end of chapter 7. And I'll direct you there uh, when we get to it. But for now, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of, that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat, sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We go to chapter 7, starting in verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is Stephen's story. And what, what interests most people about this story and about Stephen is that Stephen was, if you know anything about him, he was the first martyr. He was the first, uh, first one who may have been called the hero of the Christian church, the first one to give his life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And so while this is very true, and many focus on Stephen being the first martyr, 
it's really not the focus of the story. And what's the focus of Stephen's story is not his death, but rather the elements of what he taught that enraged the people so much that they wanted to drag him out of the city and kill him. The focus of the story is the radical features of his message that aroused the people and incited so much anger. Think about it. When was, when was the last time you heard a story or read a book or maybe even uh, heard a conversation that caused you to be furious? Do you have any Star Wars fans in here? Anybody like Phantom Menace? Anybody? I mean, is there pretty much general agreement that that was like the worst, worst Star Wars movie in the world? You know, the boy, the child boy, the child star who played young Anakin, right? The, the baby Darth Vader. People hated this movie so bad that he was so ridiculed and, and, and so defamed and, and so, uh, his, his, well, it, it ended his, his career, his acting career. It actually ended his life. The last 20 years, actually the movie came out 20 years ago, uh, if you can believe it, if that's not nuts. He spent the last 20 years of his life in, in Great Depression, in great involved in, in serious crime, uh, in treatment centers, in, in jail cells. It ruined his life because how much it was hated, how much this story was hated by so many that it ruined his life. What, what kind of stories ruin, ru make you so angry? What kind of stories make you angry? Maybe it's gossip of people, you hear things that people say about you and conversations that people have had behind your back and it, it makes you angry, it makes you hurt. Maybe there are books that you've read. Maybe it's, I mean, people are still talking about the last episode of Seinfeld and how bad it was, right, and how it should have gone differently. Why is it that our hearts become so enraged? I want you to identify with this. Why is it? that we become so angry by hearing things and hearing stories. It's because that we have, like the people in this story that become so furious, we have a tendency to want to live by a list of rules. There's a certain way that we want life to go, and when it doesn't go that way, we react to it, often violently and often with a lot of anger. So we construct rules for our own lives. We construct rules for how things should go in our own lives. And when it doesn't go that way, we become angry. We construct rules for our children. When our children disobey those rules, we become very angry and furious with them. The rules that we, that we have for ourselves uh, that, we should, that we think we should accomplish by a certain age. By a certain age and time in our life and stage in our life, we should have accomplished certain things. And when we don't, we become, we become downhearted. We become we become furious, we become depressed. We, call, we have a nice word for it, it's called a midlife crisis. I have mine planned three summers from now, just so you know. But maybe you're not going to agree with this. Maybe it's like, you know, you don't become furious because, because you love rules, because you're, you're, you're not a rule follower, you're, you're lighthearted. I mean, you are a free spirit kind of person. You don't live by rules. You don't like to be tied down. And so your motto in life is, that, is, is not to have rules, to kind of Live as you go. Live in, in the moment. Take one day at a time. In fact, take one day at a time is your only rule. You see what I'm saying? Even those who say that we don't live by rules are living by a rule of not living by rules. There's no way of ignoring it. We have a certain way, that we, a life that, is, that should be lived a certain way, and anything that gets in the way of that, it infuriates us. Even people who don't like rules live by rules, the rule to not follow rules. 
If you don't believe me, and maybe you're a free-spirited kind of a person, think about this. How do you feel after spending an entire day with a rule follower? A little angry? <laughs> a little furious? Because they're breaking your rule. The message of the gospel and the message of Stephen's speech and the reason why they hated him so much is that it's not through rule following that we are approved by God, but it's through faith in Jesus' perfect rule following for us and our, on our behalf. And for people who like the way that they live and have organized their life in such a way and have a great pride in what they believe in their life as, as how it should be lived and what is true, anybody that contends that, anybody who disagrees, it's going to mess with them. It's going to make them furious. This message was and, and, is, and, is, is, and it continues to be widely unpopular, yet it's greatly needed for us. It's a message that Stephen's message is greatly needed for every single one of us because we live in a life in our own lives and live in a culture that embraces and believes that if we live the way God tells us to live, then blessing will come to us. And the way by which we are accepted by God is by doing what He says to do. We either accept that or we deny it. But we all have the rules that we follow. And so... We need the message that, G that Stephen has for us. We need what Stephen had. And so let me give you these things that Stephen had that we see in this passage that we need to have. We need to have a satisfied heart, an honest message, and a confident hope. Let's look first at a satisfied heart. Let's look at Stephen's life and, and the message that he preached and the boldness that he had and see what does this mean for us as we live, seek to be a faithful witness in our life. What are we told about Stephen? We're told some really neat things. Uh, introduced in chapter 6, we learn that he's one of the seven uh, servants, which would later be called uh, deacons of the church. He's one of the first seven deacons that are called to minister to the practical needs of the people in the church. And in verse uh, 3 in chapter 6, it says that he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. In verse 5, we hear that he is full of faith and of spirit. In verse 8, we learn that he's full of grace and power. And in chapter 7, we learn that he's full of again, of the Holy Spirit. What are we meant to see about Stephen? He's full of something. He is full of God. Stephen was a man that was full. Stephen was so full that we are told that he is full at least five times. And it means just like you would imagine. What does it mean that he was full? It means, uh, it's like the image of a drinking glass that is just filled all the way to the top. You can't put any more in there. Almost to the, it's even filling over. It's, over. it's flowing over. It is so full. Picture the image of a, a great meal that you have just eaten. You're full. You're satisfied. You're, 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 your belly is complete. There's not a, a single more thing that you can put in there, not even jello. That's how full you are. But I like another description of this word full. It's describing Stephen as one who is satisfied. Satisfied in the Spirit, satisfied with the grace of God, satisfied in wisdom of God, satisfied by the presence of the Spirit in his life. It's a picture who, of a person who's restless in nothing, satisfied in everything because of the fullness of grace that he has experienced. Do you have this picture of this person in your mind? That's Stephen. That's what we know about Stephen. We're not told a lot about him, but we are told that he was a man who was full. He was satisfied. Full of grace. Grace reminds us of the unmerited favor of God, the unmerited, unlimited riches of God that are given to us because of Jesus. 
God's grace flowed to Stephen and overflowed in his heart, that it overflowed into everything that was in front of him, like a fountain that was full. And then the water kept coming into the fountain. That was Stephen's life. And it overflowed into everyone that came in contact with him. And God's grace can accomplish the same thing for you and I. Stephen was a man that was full. Let me ask you, when someone bursts your bubble, what flows out? When someone presses you, when someone uh, instigates you, when someone bursts your bubble, what is it that overflows? It is that thing that, that shows us what we're really made of, what's inside of us. We are told that when Stephen is pressed to the limit, when his bubble is burst, what flows out is Jesus. Not because in that moment he decided he needs to be a faithful witness, but it was in that moment we see what he was truly made of. And Luke, the writer of this passage, is telling us he was full of Jesus. When your bubble is burst, what pours out? Historians tell us that it was actually quite difficult uh, to stone a person to death. It was not an easy thing. I don't know if you think of it like I have thought of it. You think of these... these the, the, it's so quick, right? It, you know, so, and he was stoned, and, and then he died. And we, we're not, we don't go into the details of people's uh, death by stoning, but it was actually, think about how gruesome it would be. And a young man like Stephen, a young, strong man, it must have been even more difficult. How brutal, how violent of an act can you imagine? That's what it was like. That's what Stephen went through. A few rocks and a few broken jars being thrown at someone would never do the trick. It was long and it was difficult activity, activity, so difficult that we're told that all of these men who are engaged in this had to take off their outer garments and be stripped down all the, the way to their, uh, their, their waist coverings. And they had to assign somebody to watch over all of their clothes that they took off so that they wouldn't get stolen. And the person who's watching over all of these possessions is Saul, who we know that would later write more than half of the New Testament turned into Paul, you would meet Jesus. And so we see here one of the, the people who is complicit and aided in the killing of the first hero of the church was a man that God would use greatly in our lives and in the lives of countless other people. He's literally being torn apart and torn open, and he says, Lord, don't hold this against them. Isn't that unbelievable? He was able to do this because of the satisfaction and delight that he had in the grace of God and nothing else. It wasn't because he was a really great guy. It wasn't because he, he was taught that you should love your enemies. He was able to do this because when he was split open, what poured out was the fullness of God that he had experienced. And I know maybe you're thinking, that could never be you. Are you thinking that? This is, that, is a, that is a level of Christian maturity I will never get to. I will express kindness to others when I am wronged. I will be kind and patient. I will, I will maintain composure. I can never be this guy. I can never be one who is killed violently like this by my enemies. And what pours out of me is a plea to God to forgive them in their moment of most wicked sin. I'm calling out for, to God to curse them, to, to get justice, to satisfy my hunger for righteousness. Maybe you're thinking, this is unique, of course. It's the book of Acts. I mean, you read a book of Acts, and it's, it's crazy things happen. Miracles, every turn of the, of the page. 
We should expect to see things like this from the book of Acts. But what did Stephen have that you and I don't have? How is Stephen described? Let me tell you everything that Stephen has. Faith, wisdom, grace, the Holy Spirit. Are these extraordinary things? Are these things that are hard to come by? Are these things that we're, are we, do we not normally couple uh, the Christian walk with these words? These are, these are common. These are vitally common and abundant things in the life of a person who knows Jesus. Faith, wisdom, grace, the presence of the Holy Spirit. They are common to the Christian as sand to the beach. They are as common to the Christian as cactus to the desert. They're as common to the Christian as LeBron to the playoffs, right? These are things that are not stunningly unique and rare. We should not look at Stephen's life and say, how did he do it? What did he find? What secret did he have that made him say this? We're told what he has, and they are the most common elementary things in the Christian faith. A knowledge of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. A rest in all that God has done for us and has said to us because of what Jesus has done. And this was enough for Stephen. They're not rare resources. They are abundantly common. The aroma of death fills these two chapters. Chapter 6 and 7, if you read them slowly, you will see that the aroma of death and wickedness builds up and to the point of climax we see that he is violently killed. And yet in its presence of this aroma of death, and impending evil, and the cringe of the outcome, we see something beautiful. Something that is so beautiful that is revealed. What is revealed is that not only that Jesus saves us, but he changes us. That it's possible to be people like Stephen that don't just believe that Jesus died for our sins and we're saved, but we could be people that are satisfied. We can be people that are filled with the fullness of God in a way that it changes us. Changes our demeanor, changes our attitudes, changes our posture to the world, changes our, the way that we engage in relationships. If you're a Christian, let me ask you, what, what was the one thing that, was, that most notably vanished from your life when you first rested in the gospel? When you first, if you can recall the time when you first knew and heard that Jesus loved you and died for you and forgives you and the weight of sin was first lifted from your soul, what was the first thing that left? What was the first burden that was lifted? I remember a good friend of mine, he tells me that, that what left him first was fear, fear of dying. He spent 10 months, imagine this, 10 months in a full body cast where he couldn't move a single limb and he couldn't move a single muscle in his body. For 10 months, he was in a hospital in a full body cast where every, almost every bone in his body was broken. And he was so afraid of dying. And it was during that season that he realized that he didn't need to be afraid of dying if he knew Jesus, if he knew the love of God, he could be free from that burden. And when he trusted Jesus for the first time, what left him most notably was a fear of death. For me, it, was always, it had always been a temper that boiled over. For me, it was always a deep resentment when pushed. For me, it was always this bitterness. And the first thing that I noticed in my life, most marked in my life when I trusted Jesus, was I didn't have to feel that way anymore. 
I didn't have to have a temper. I didn't have to have anger. I didn't have to have resentment. It was one of the clearest things crucified in my life when I realized that Jesus died for my sins. And it's one of the things that returns the quickest when I take my eyes off of Jesus' grace for me. What is it for you? Is there something? Is there, are there many things? There, as you grow and mature in your faith, it will, you'll grow increasingly in recognizing the things that Jesus takes from, from our hearts, the way that he makes us more and more like him. And it was God's grace that enabled Stephen to be a completely new man. And God's grace does the same for you, to be a new man, a new woman. Not just forgiven, but changed. And so as we look at this message, we see this man. We see that there was a satisfied soul, and this is what the good news does. It changes us. It was the grace of God that enabled him to speak not just with humility, but speak with courage and to give an honest message. This is the next thing that we see from the life of Stephen, that he was able to give an honest message. If we want to be a faithful servant, we must speak with courage. We must uh, have the guts to be honest and to tell the truth. Stephen's speech was really long. It's the part that we didn't read. Uh, in, it, it covers almost all of chapter 7. It's here that Stephen charts Israel's long history and God's work through the people of, uh, of the Jewish people and how God's provision for them all the way from, from Abraham uh, to their rescue from Egypt to Moses and the, temp and the temple. And his basic argument is, through, is this, through the whole story of God. His basic argument in chapter 7 is this, no one can make themselves good enough for God. Look at what Stephen does. His accusers say to him, you're rejecting God's law. And how does he respond? He responds in verse 51 by saying, you are stubborn people. You haven't kept God's law. And instead, you killed the only one who did. They say, they say we are accusing you of not obeying God's law. And he says, no, you're not obeying God's law. It was the first in all of history, I know you are, but what am I? Right? You're disobeying God's word. He says, I know you are, but what am I? You're the ones disobeying God's word. Stephen's that bratty little brother, but he's honest. He's telling the truth. He says, you've broken God's law. Everyone has broken God's law. You have killed every prophet that God has sent to you. Every good word you've rejected. Stephen wanted to make sure that no one missed this point, so he drove it home by saying, their striving to please God has done nothing to earn his acceptance. And to a people who based their life on pleasing God through their works, this was infuriating. It was stunning. Because no one pleased God perfectly. No one has pleased him. Pleased him. No one is righteous. No one is deserving of God's love. He picks apart everything that they trusted in, everything that they placed their, home, their hope in, and he showed them how this was not meant to ever satisfy us as, as the way that the grace of God can. They were so proud of the temple. They loved the temple of God because this was the meaning place. It was the way that they could have relationship with God. The temple was a symbol of their, of their, uh, their identity as God's people. They cherished it so much. And, and God says to them, you think I need a temple to be with my people? You think that you could actually build something with me, for me with human hands? 
I'm not confined to brick and mortar. I'm not confined to the temple. They accuse him for hating the law, and he points out the purpose of the law was never to allow us to find acceptance with God. The purpose of the law was to point out that we never could. The purpose of the law was to point to the righteousness that Jesus offers. Think about if someone came to you and said, what does it mean to be a good Christian? What's the starting point? Just tell me where to start. The starting point of of, of being a Christian is never the law of God. The starting point for being a Christian is never in doing what God has told us to do. The starting point in being a Christian is hearing that we never can live up to what he's told us to do. That's the starting point. The starting point is become, bringing, being to an, an end of ourselves, an end of our righteousness, an end of our ability to please God, and driving us into the arms of our Savior. Stephen has the courage to tell them this, and they hate it. Stephen has the courage to tell them that they need to not only repent of bad things, that to, to, to know the truth is not just to repent of the bad things that we have done, but to repent also of the good things that we have done for the wrong reasons, the reasons of trying to earn God's favor. And they've spent their life doing this. The honest and unpopular message that Stephen gives is that everyone is in need of a Savior. Everyone needs to be born again. Everyone needs to be made new. Everyone is deserving of God's punishment, and everyone needs to be driven to the arms of a Savior. George Whitfield was a famous preacher in the 1700s, a very, a very passionate preacher, and during a preaching series, he preached several days in a row a sermon titled, You Must Be Born Again. Three times in a row, the church would come back, and he preached the same sermon, You Must Be Born Again. It was titled the same, and it was the same theme, and, and then people came back again, and he preached it again. Three days in a row, expecting different, a sequence of series, he preached the exact same thing. And his elders came to him, and they said, why do you keep saying you must be born again? To which he answered, because you must be born again. And I can't say it enough, you need a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs to be born again. Everyone is in a situation where we cannot make ourselves good enough. For God. Stephen's audience was essentially similar to people we might encounter today who are asking questions about why do we believe what we believe? What does it mean to believe Jesus? They're essentially believing that if we do our best to follow God, then we'll receive blessing from Him. Maybe some of you re- believe that as well. That if we do our best to follow God's rules, then He will then bless us. But you know that we're never talking about the gospel of the Bible. We're never talking about the grace of God if we're talking about all the things we've done to deserve it. If we're talking about all the things that we have done, all the, uh, all the habits of our life, all of the things that we have accumulated, if we're ever talking about all the reasons God should love us, then we're not understanding why He actually does. But as negative as this is, as as negative as this event is, its positive conclusion shows us the confident hope that Stephen has in Jesus. And it's Stephen's confident hope that I'll, that I'll leave with you now. 
Look at this last thing, the confident hope that he has. Stephen's speech was his death warrant. He was more than okay. Stephen was radiant. Stephen was glowing like an angel. Stephen was crying out to the Lord to forgive his enemies. He had been satisfied by God's grace. He was courageous in his proclamation of the truth and our inability to please God on our own. And now he nears death and he gazes into heaven and there he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus standing. Jesus was standing. Why do I say it like that? Every other time in the Bible where we see that Jesus is at the right hand of God, what is he doing? Sitting. Okay, I don't want you to ignore this. This is not by accident. And I had to look it up, and you can look it up too. Every single time that the heavens are opened and we see Jesus in glory, he's sitting down. Stephen looks up and Jesus is standing. What is he doing? I mean, is he getting up? Is he taking a break? What is Jesus doing here? It's a, it's a big deal. There are other passages in the Scripture that tells us that the image of Jesus sitting is meant to show us Jesus' completed work of redemption for us. His, his life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven, and He sits at the Father to show us that, his, that the work is done. The work has been completed. And He sits because there is nothing else to be done. Why does Jesus stand? Well, the Bible tells us that when Jesus is in a standing position, he stands as an advocate before God the Father for us. He is our lawyer standing for, before God, speaking good about us. I want you to see how amazing this is. Jesus, Stephen is there, and he sees the court of the earth condemning him, and he looks up into heaven, and the court of heaven is commending him. Jesus is defending him. Jesus is advocating for him. Jesus is interceding for him on his behalf to God the Father. This means that the very moment that he is being condemned by everyone, he sees that he is accepted by God. And Jesus' posture would communicate that, and the heavens opening up would communicate that, and, and Stephen got there, got there in a moment, an extremely vivid and powerful sight of what he already knew intellectually, which was, Jesus accepts me and he loves me. But he got in a moment there a vivid expression that in Christ we are beautiful in God's sight. And because we are beautiful in God's sight because of what he has done, we are free from condemnation. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people do. Even the worst thing can happen to us and the most brutal, brutal death we can experience. And Jesus is still standing, advocating for us, and we have nothing to fear. And when Stephen was cracked open, what flowed out was love and grace and forgiveness and joy and calmness, not because Stephen was a good guy that we should be like, because he knew that he had the favor and acceptance of Christ. At that moment there, the verdict at the throne of God became so real and so overwhelming to him that the verdict on earth became inconsequential. He faced his accusers with boldness. He faced them with joy. 
he not only had a, a, a peace about his salvation, but he had a, a message that he could give with confident boldness and truth and courage, and he had a confidence with God for what awaited him. And it's true to say that to, to, to the degree that we are aware that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus doesn't condemn us, that Jesus is for us, and we are right, that His righteousness goes before us, before the Father on our behalf, then we will have courage and love and power. Do you lack courage and love and power as you speak truth to people in your life, to friends and family members, co-workers? Are you timid? It's directly related to your uncertainty of God's favor and acceptance of you no matter what. Here's a question. Did Stephen look up to the heavens because he saw Jesus appear? Or did Jesus appear because he looked up into the heavens? Well, we're told that, G that, that Stephen looked up to the heavens and then Jesus appeared. We can only sin if we suffer from a radical loss of perspective. We can only become weary if we take our eyes off of Jesus. He looked up to the heavens for hope. He looked up for comfort. And it is there he sees Jesus, reminding him of his love for him. We only sin when we suffer from a radical loss of perspective, and that's exactly what we do time and time again. We forget our God. We forget the identity he gives to us. We forget his grace and mercy. We need to nurture our trust in God's greatness, our delight in his goodness, our longing for God's future, our rest in his grace. The secret to this is to go to the cross. It is at the cross where we see God's dying for us. It is at the cross we see His work completed for us. It is at the cross we see His love poured out for us. If your God is the approval of others, if your God is the success of your life or the control of others in your life, and if you fail in any of those areas, if your God is being able to follow the rules and striving in your life, to please God, then when you fail, you will become dejected, depressed, you will become broken down and downcast. You'll become bitter and afraid. You'll become furious at others who have broken your rules. But here's what happens when you let Jesus down. When you let Jesus down, he reminds you that he died for you. When you let the gods of your world down, they beat you up. They make you Remember how much you have failed. But when you let God down, He reminds you how much He gave for you. So see Him crucified in your place. See Him risen for your hope and see His face shine on you with great gladness. To be a faithful witness is to be like Stephen that is filled with a fullness of God's grace finding our identity in Him, knowing that we can do nothing to please Him on our own, but that we are pleased in His sight, that we are favor in His sight, we are accepted in His sight because of what He has done. And in times of trouble, we look up to the heavens and we see Him reminding us, I'm standing, I'm advocating for you. This court here has cleared you of all guilt. Don't be afraid. Let's pray.